C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood. Welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. Excellent radio voice today. And I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Thank Yergi. you. It's funny, as I was saying that, I missed that. I, I haven't figured out how to like hook up my mic to my new computer yet. So I'm like, I didn't have my mic to lean into and I felt like I was missing something. But I Love leaned it. into the radio voice. Love the upgrade. Well, we're really excited today. We kicked off the book club um, a number of weeks ago, months ago at this point, but we're finally ready to talk about it. Um, really excited. So definitely let us know. Listeners, keep the conversation going. If you read the book, um, happy to talk about this and other topics later on. But the book that we read is Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by Anne Helen Peterson. And we both read this. Shay and I had not read the book before, so we're both coming at this very fresh. Um, We've talked about burnout in the past, and obviously it's a big millennial topic that we both have experience in. So we'll just be having kind of a loose discussion about the book and our takes and some of our experience with burnout as well. So without further ado, Shay, I know you have some hot takes. If you want to take it away. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, it's so funny because going back to our like intro to this topic, it's something that I'm very skeptical I can't even say the word skeptical of however and I I will say this book paints a pretty bleak picture I don't think there's any way around that and I think it you know I I wanted to always be aware that I was reading it through that lens but also as I was reading it I was like oh fuck this is describing my life it's describing the life of so many of my friends Um, I'm making it required reading over at Breakaway for our management team because we've been having some issues, particularly with recruiting ancient millennials. Uh, And I think this book explains why. Um, I so I mean, it's it's a book that I think I've really been profoundly affected by reading. And, um, you know, there are two things that. I mean, I think the fir- the thing that really, really stuck out with me is just, you know, the way she describes the millennial condition from the beginning of the book is that we are living in this state of precarity. And I'd never heard it put that way. And I, you know, it makes so much sense, right? And then basically her whole book goes on to say this, you know, this state of precarity is really the state of the world, the state of millennialism, millennials. Um, and here's all the ways it be, we got to the state of precariousness and precarity, um, and very little at the end of what we can do to fix it. But, uh, so anyway, so that seeing it put that way, right. Having her write that, you know, millennials do not trust their workplace was really, um, profound for me. Um, and I think, 
it yeah. resonate would resonate for a lot of elder millennials. And I'm really curious to hear how you address that kind of as someone who had a bit of a different millennial experience as we talk about often on this podcast. Yeah, I think um, it's funny because I think when we first when we've talked about this topic in the past and the thing that I always oscillate between is what are systemic generational issues Mm -hmm. and then what are just individual circumstances and obviously systemic things are just a collection of individual experiences but I think it is a distinction and it's funny I feel like I came away from the book a little bit more optimistically and I think it might just be a little bit of my personality I've been having a lot of conversations um I had one particular conversation this week with someone where they had people that were leaving. They work for like a kind of yuppie millennial company, which I also identify with that as well with where I work, where it's like urban transplants working for these companies that like chronically underpay people. And that's like the lucky ones. It's like these are people that have health insurance that aren't contractors that have some level of job security. And it's still like oh, let's pay people less and overwork them and promise them the world and then under-deliver. And I was having a conversation with this person and they were like, yeah, I think I'm going to like collect all this data and figure out if I need to get promoted or, you know, do I need to leave the company? I've been there for three years. Maybe it's time to move on. And they were trying to quantify like these are all the elements of the job. And they were like, I think that the work-life balance and the culture of this company, that's part of the aspect of the job that this person really liked, Um, they were like, I would quantify that to be like $15,000, basically implying that like whatever the standard rate is, they would Mm -hmm. discount it by 15 grand, give or take for a year. Wow. And I was like, no, I was like, companies Mm -hmm. should not get brownie points for treating people like humans and letting people bring their full self to work. Like, Mm -hmm. they should not be getting a pass. That is not the mentality that you should have. And so I'm coming into this discussion kind of thinking about this book and thinking about that and a lot of conversations I've had with friends and family over the years where that's like an individual thing, someone discounting their own experience. um, And that happens over a whole generation, right? But it's like, why, why would someone feel like they have to? And so I, this is all to say I'm coming at it with like, I'm a little bit more of an aggressive personality in the workplace and Mm -hmm. I like negotiating on salary and I like being Mm -hmm. a business lady. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that colors my, so I just want to say that up top of like, people are like, whoa, why? (laughs) I I feel like I'm not the typical like young millennial in that sense. Maybe. I think too, Maddie, I think there's a big difference between, because I feel like I'm, you know, pretty bold in the workplace as well. But I think as an elder millennial, I think you've dealt with less precarity than like the general, the younger millennials have dealt with less precarity than the older millennials. I would agree. And I think, you know, and, and, and I really enjoyed what she talks about in the beginning of the book where she talks about the upbringing that, that created this state of millennials and, and burnout, you know, she talks a lot in the center of the book about um, workplace culture and the history of workplace culture. But she talks in the beginning about parenting. And and this was something I really wanted to about, about how we were parented. And Mm -hmm. then she ends the book with how we parent our children. Um, But I thought it was really interesting. And I, I wanted to get your take on what your experience was versus 
mine, and I think we we've something that we've talked about a lot, but um, uh, Ms. Peterson in the book talks about like she's an elder millennial like myself, and she said, right, again, I was on the cusp. I had a lot of freedom. I wasn't. I'm not a digital native, etc. And then she talks to younger millennials who have this air of like they she called it cultivated concern from their parents. So every aspect of their life is curated and scheduled in a specific way. And basically this creates little adults who can only function in, in adulthood, right? When they are scheduled and are doing something. And then there's this basically creates this culture of, and this is where I was like, Oh fuck, she's talking about me <laughs> was when, she was like, yeah, every millennials think if they just find the right system, if they mm-hmm. just work hard enough, if they just do more, they're going to figure it out and it's all going to make sense and that that's a fallacy. So anyway, I just basically yeah. was like, here's my thoughts on half the book in two sentences. But. No, I definitely agree. And I feel like that definitely resonates with me. It was something I was talking about to my therapist, actually, like just the other week that it's like, if I have unscheduled time... Like, if I'm looking at the weekend and I'm like, I have no plans, like, I will make plans. And part of this, I think, is like, I'm a little bit, you know, on the positive end of extroversion. But I think part of it is that where it's like, I work better under pressure. I've been scheduled my whole life. I love a spreadsheet. Like, and so that part definitely resonated with me, where it was like, if there is a system um, and really relying on like big corporate systems like that's been my bread and butter like as an adult um so that definitely translates and i see it even more i'm obviously a younger millennial but i see it more with the the gen z's and even with my brother who's a little bit younger than me too where it's like i think part of it is the like oldest daughter thing as well like the responsibility for the family i don't know if that resonates Mm -hmm. with you as well shay but that's something that you know, they talk a little bit about it in the book too, like family structure. And obviously there's nuances there, but um, yeah, I definitely feel like the concept, like bringing it back to like the concept of what are we talking about? We're talking about burnout, which like maybe we can talk about that first up top of just like, what is each of our concepts of like what burnout even is? And then how did this book either affirm that belief or change it? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, and it's so funny because I was thinking, I was like, does she even. Yeah, she doesn't even really like talk about it. Yeah, she never really defines burnout. And I think that's actually really telling because I always felt the same way. Like it wasn't really something I could define. And I would never have said like, oh, my gosh, I feel so burned out. And I think that's also why I would sometimes be a little judgy, right? When people would come into my life and they'd be like, I'm burned out. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like why what does that even mean um and i it's just it's interesting and it's funny there was just this article that came out this week that i didn't read but i've heard like six people reference um i think it was the new york times about this concept at the end of the pandemic of languishing Mm -hmm. right like you're not depressed but you're also not really like happy yeah you're just kind of like just going through the motions Mm mm-hmm yeah. And I think, you know, she she only kind of describes burnout as this like chronic fatigue that it like yeah. never goes away. And you always and instead of being able to place a cause on that, right, the fatigue is just coming from the system. So, you know, 
for me, I always thought like burnout kind of wasn't a thing until reading this book. And I still like, don't think I would be like, Oh, I'm burned out. Right. Because, right. It's so ingrained in me that I can just figure it out. But, um, yeah, I think it was a real turning point for me to realize that like burnout isn't something like, Oh, I worked really hard to get my thesis done or to finish this project at work or to, you know, bring my child to first grade without like, you know, running in front of traffic. Um, and I feel burnt out and I'm going to take a vacation and feel better. Right? right. So that's kind of, I think what I always thought burnout was, was like a short term fatigue. Like literally, like mm-hmm. if you're looking at, um, a candle or something and it like flares up and then yeah. goes out and then you have to relight it. So that's kind of how I think I've always thought about burnout. Um, but it was really enlightening to see how this is a state of like, of chronic it's a chronic state. And then that I think really is helping me reframe how I think about it when I encounter people who are experiencing it and how I can hopefully also like steer or stem the tide in my own life. Yeah, totally. I think that goes into what we've talked about before too, which is the mental health aspect of like, what about this millennial culture either is masking or exacerbating anxiety and depression and things and there was an an aspect of the book where they were giving the anecdote she talks a lot about corporate culture and like productivity quotas and the psychology around being watched at work like the constant like slack like having to show that you're on and that kind of thing which was very interesting and they had but they had a quote from someone that was talking about like logging bathroom breaks and they were like yes and I thought this was very interesting because I agreed. I was like, this is, this is crazy. But I would almost want, um, maybe we could do this in a future episode, like having a someone from a different generation read this book and get their take as well. So I'd love if anyone's listening, if they have any, any takes or any opinions. Um, because, you know, things like, like you work with a lot of finance professionals and accountants, like the time clocking thing has always existed. I think the technology that she was um, talking about was is very millennial, obviously. But the quote from this person, they were like, clearly very anxious about it. They were like, well, if I have to take a bathroom break, like, do I have to log it? And well, it's and like, I- that to me is like, this is a person that is clearly already very anxious. The system is making them more anxious. But like, that person probably, this is maybe me being a little judgmental, that prob- that person would probably have the same thought in 1960. And I think that there's a little, like a slight edge of like, oh, well, it's just Slack's fault. It's just the technology's fault. When it's like, mm, no, this is an anxious person that should well, be getting help or also, and then it goes into the whole thing of like, what is mental health? And then what is people just not having personal responsibility to at a certain extent? Yeah. And not well, dealing I, with their problems in an appropriate way. Yeah. But I, and I, I want to like circle back to what you said about the whole like, well, time clocking isn't new. But I think there's a difference between clocking billable hours versus clocking like how much time you've spent on a task. And there was another example that she used in here. And I, I think both are bad, right? This is something that I talk about yeah. at work almost every day, right? Like billable hours are bad because every one hour that's billable also requires an hour of admin. So if you have to get eight billable hours a day, you're really working, you know, 
12 or 14 hours a day and that's where the problem comes in and that's why right uh you know so many people accountants lawyers etc are so burned out because and I, and I think that's a little bit of a different kind of exhaustion because you have that and then what you have layered on top of that is exactly what that woman was talking about which is the the other example that comes to my mind is the one that she said of the woman who worked at a photo editing company or yeah. worked for a photographer and she so the the anecdote was that this woman at work would there was a software that tracked exactly what they were doing within the photo editing mm-hmm. software so which clicks were made etc and then that was reviewed at the end of a month and if you have ever worked in photography you know a photographer can edit i mean they're probably editing tens of thousands of photos a month if not more than that And then they would get called in and be asked about like why they did it this way that was seen as less productive. And the, you know, the employee was like, well, I I don't even remember editing that, you know, like that wasn't even, so it was this, this call for, you know, productivity at all costs and then the surveillance. But I think the thing that also I was very interested in was this whole idea of um, consultant culture that comes up. Oh, I have a lot of opinions Uh, on this, but tell me how you think first. Well, the funny thing is, like, clearly I'd watched that movie up in the air with uh, the delightful George mm-hmm. Clooney and Anna Kendrick. Excellent, excellent film. It came out, gosh, probably about 10 years ago now, but it was was really wonderful. Um, but I didn't really, like, think that – I didn't, I think, realize how pervasive that job was. Like, to me, it seemed – I mean, I've never really, like, met anybody whose that was their job, but also oh, yeah. I don't come from that industry – from a part of the country – where that industry I think is really prevalent, like maybe Maddie, you did coming from Detroit, where I think that was very common where consultants would come in. There's that. And, but it's more, um, and I'll, I'll talk through this more after you're done, but coming out of business school, like Mm -hmm. as an example, I would say like it was probably a third big four accounting, a third big banking, which is where I went. And then a third consulting, so a third of my friends from college went into consulting right out of college. So that's where I have the most yeah. experience with it. And I, I think the thing that I didn't realize what consulting is, is I always thought consulting was just, I mean, I guess I know what it is. It's go, you go and you yeah. look at the systems and the processes and the finances and the culture of a company and you make recommendations based on, you know, data and strategy, et cetera, to make it better. But the thing that I I guess I never put two and two together is that the primary goal of consulting is to cut the workforce to the bare minimum so that the company can make the most profits. Yeah, either the workforce or the processes. Like, it's not necessarily workforce. But to me, the main goal of consulting is to give management plausible deniability. So usually management knows what they want to do and then they'll say, here's some consultants. Um, But it's, it's never, you're never hiring a consultant where it's like, we're doing great. We just want to zhuzh it up a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel like I, this is going to, this is going to get me in trouble what I'm about to say, but the, Oh Lord, Madeline. No, nothing bad. It's just like, I have a lot of friends in consulting, a lot of family in consulting and I'm going to be like, it's not a real job. (laughs) Um, no, I don't actually think that. No, I feel like I, um, I understand why I thought this was like one of the most fascinating parts of the book, because 
it leads to burnout so quickly. I actually, one of my cousins worked for one of the big consulting firms, one of the national ones, and he actually ended up getting shingles at age 25, which is super rare from stress. Yeah. And he ended up quitting and like moving to Asia for a period of time. Like he could not, he was like physically ill from the job and all of the travel and stuff. So I think that's like, talk about clinical burnout to like the extreme. Um, Yeah. Which is obviously not burnout, but it's like, it was job related stress. Right. And to me consulting, it's like, you're not, you're not getting the value. They talk a lot about in this book with workplace culture and the stability that a job can create and what the boomers felt when they felt like they were part of a culture. And consulting takes that away and you're traveling all the time so you don't really have a home base. And then you're going into these hostile environments where people know that you're there for not, you know, to give people a pep talk. You're there to fire people or to recommend that, you know, saying that they're the people whose livelihood it is. And this is where maybe what you were alluding to with Detroit, like I've talked to my dad about this, like when they were going through um, labor negotiations and all the stuff that was happening in 2008, they hired consulting companies and it was a bunch of like 25 year olds that were like, you're doing your job horribly. And it's like, okay, I'm 50. I've been doing, I know this industry inside and out. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you know? Right. So these young kids are getting faced with that pressure Um, Mm -hmm. of wanting to excel. These are very high-achieving kids. And they're going into these places where they're not really wanted. The pressure for productivity is really high. Um, And it's a burn and churn model. I faced this when I worked in banking as well. Like, they know that a certain percentage of people will only do it for two years. So you're expendable. And so you're not really building a community back home. You're not building a community at the workplace because it's temporary. And you're being expected to work 90 hours a week. Like, to me, that's such a recipe for failure. Well, and I think, you know, but the good thing, I get not good thing, but the thing that's nice about consulting is they, there's never been any, like, and she, again, this is mentioned in the book, like, everybody knows that that's the deal. What I think is terrible and kind of more insidious is, right, are these tech companies, these startups who, yes, uh, you know, embody a lot of these same practices but then they couch it in this like oh isn't this cool we offer you three meals a day isn't this cool that's what I was kind of saying up top about the person that was like yeah that's what I was saying up top about the person that was like oh all of those things are worth 15 grand and so therefore I need to get paid less it's like no like if they're expecting you to work such long hours that they need to give you meals and to do your dry cleaning, then they need to pay you more. Like they, you should be able to be treated like a human. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, again, this goes into all of this culture of burnout, right? That's systemic burnout that's going on has ingrained in us as a generation, right? Exactly what you were talking about. Okay, well, if I have a work-life balance, then it's okay that I make $15,000 less. Or, oh, if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, then that's why I'm not making more money. I'm not blah, blah, blah. When in reality, if you were working more, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be making more money. You wouldn't necessarily be more successful. And I, you know, that I think was really 
impactful for me because even this week, the last couple months, I've been tracking my time just because I was like curious, where can I be more efficient, right? Trying to collect data. I'm basically trying to run these surveillance programs on myself as a solopreneur, which is hysterical. Um, but I was curious. And then I realized that, you know, very clearly, many studies show this, you can only really do about six hours of work a day. Right. And that's about when I clock in. Now, granted, as a solopreneur, I tend to answer a lot of or and, and as part of this other company, you know, I do tend to answer a lot of questions and be available you know, really 24 seven, but the amount of like terror, like even saying this out loud, I'm like, Oh, I hope Kristen doesn't listen to this episode. Like the amount of terror I have at like admitting that I only work six to eight hours a day. I'm like, no, that's a normal work week. That's normal. And, and those are dedicated hours, right? Because I don't have any colleagues. I'm literally just sitting at my desk working for six hours. So they're pretty productive, you know? Um, but, my self-worth is so ingrained in that that sometimes even I sit at my desk right past the point of being productive because I feel like it's the production that I had is only valuable if I can say I logged nine hours and I'm like actually it's better to work really hard for five hours and then you know yeah skeeve off for the rest of the day yeah so I think that's just a huge mindset shift that has to happen at all levels for there to start to be this change away from this systemic burnout. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you say that because I, I feel the same, but I think I interpret it in kind of a mirror way where I totally agree with you. I think it's like all the science shows everyone that has a corporate job, there's always the like fluffy business, right? That not fluffy business, but like time when you're talking to people where you're not, you know, hands-on keyboard productive right that's like built into office culture and that should be embraced that it's like it's impossible and you're not getting the best work out of people when you're you know having them burn the midnight oil right the thing that I think where I key into this like millennial workplace culture is around the money aspect and I hear so many of my friends that are like okay well I'm gonna leave one of these like high burnout industries and I'm gonna go work for a startup or whatever, or I'm going to become a solo entrepreneur and I'm going to try to like make my own schedule. Right. Because they're, they're craving that. But then they're like, you know, it's different, obviously if you're at a different stage of a startup, but if you're joining an established company and I did this to a, to a, a small degree, I would say it was a calculated risk, but like I took a pay cut when I came out of the high burnout industry. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even in the past, five years since I was out of college, it's been so people know this, right? I think the burnout culture in these industries has only been ramping up. So the smaller companies know that people are willing to take a pay cut and they're taking advantage of it. And so, Mm -hmm. and there are companies out there. Like, I think I'm very fortunate. I feel like my company, I've never had to negotiate. That's not true. I shouldn't say that. I've never had to like aggressively negotiate for salary at my current company. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like I've been treated very fairly, but then I see a lot of my friends and I know how much they're getting paid. And I'm like, this is highway robbery. And then they're like, well, I don't know. Part of it I think is like personal, right? People have low self-esteem. They have low confidence in their skills Mm -hmm. and abilities. And I think that is a very millennial thing, especially with elder millennials that have been shit on by the system 
for years mm-hmm. and years and years, they do not believe in themselves as much, right? Um, but they're always like, well, it's okay. I'm getting out of the high. It's so much better than my old job. And I'm like, well, you're doing the same amount of work that I'm doing and you're getting paid 20 grand less. That's not okay. You're being taken advantage mm-hmm. of, right? I'm, I know I'm not getting overpaid. So that means by default, you're getting underpaid. So to me, it's it's interesting that you, you use the term self-worth in terms of hours and productivity. I feel like my mm-hmm. self-worth is more wrapped up in the money angle, but it all kind of feeds yeah. the same thing, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. No, you're right. But I also think, and there's been so many times we've talked about this on this podcast is like if you hit the workforce in approximately 2008 Mm -hmm. you are screwed forever behind your um the anchor contemporaries or your peers yes so so that's why i think that again it's always like you get what you get and you don't throw a fit yeah you're lucky to have anything they'll pay you what they're gonna pay you suck it up right oh and on top of that because right if it were just that it was like okay you're going to take a job as, say, a teacher, but that job in terms of hours, et cetera, looks the same as it always has. Oh, no, no, no. You're going to take it for less and you're going to do twice as much work and you're going to like it. Like that is. And your health care is shittier. All of the And above. your health care is shittier and you have no benefits. Oh, and you have no pension. Oh, and we're taking away your union. Oh, and we're doing that. Like, yeah. there's all of this stuff. So that's where the problem is, you know, and that's, I think, again, right, it's this twofold thing. And, and, and I think it's very interesting to see how, again, right, just 10 years later, you have even a slightly different experience. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I see it a lot, like, almost within the generation where it's like, I feel like older millennials, or people that experience that economic hardship, um, I even see it more so like at a micro level, like I'm fortunate enough that my parents are still married, but I see it a lot with like, whether it was the 2008 recession or people that dealt with divorce that oftentimes has financial implications for a family, that it very much is the like, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit thing and they don't Mm -hmm. ask for more. And now those older people are getting into management positions and the younger millennials and the Gen Zs are coming along and, you know, there's more information and this big culture around talking about these things, which I think is a great thing, and sharing of salaries mm-hmm. and really being transparent and stuff. Yeah. And I think the elder millennials are, like, not equipped to manage the younger mm-hmm. millennials in a sense, um, Yeah, which is very interesting. I also think yeah. just in the interest of time, talking about this, like, aging parents and parenting phenomenon with millennials Mm -hmm. and kind of being in this Mm -hmm. sandwich of like all this job stuff that we're kind of focused on with the burnout yeah and then also the boomers and the younger kids I obviously don't have kids so I'll throw it over to you and your parents are also older than mine too so I feel like I haven't really hit that that part of the book didn't really resonate as much with me yet Mm -hmm. but I think it's an important topic so wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that well I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I think that's a, a topic that I think about a lot. It's something that I've talked about here. You know, I'm very lucky because my parents are in very good health and I don't anticipate yes. them. They're sprightly you know, and we love them. They're quite sprightly. Um, so, you know, at this point, I'm very lucky because I'm in a point that my parents are aging very well and I can focus on continuing to just build a... Um, 
uh, you know, build my relationship with them and make memories with them and, and all of that. But, you know, I had an experience, you know, we've talked about with, um, helping to take care of my cousin's dad, right? So my cousin, Kristen, former guest of the pod, he, uh, so she's 15 years older than me. So, you know, do the math. Her dad is X number of years older than, than my dad. So before he passed, right, Kristen and I were thrown into this world of caregiving and we were like, holy shit, we know this yeah. is nobody has the information. There is no guide for this. There's no nothing, you know, and and I think what a lot of and I may and I will be completely honest, that's the chapter at the end I didn't read. So oh, that's okay. I may just be spitballing no a little bit here, but I still think it's really interesting, right? Because your parents get to a certain age. And there's going to be more boomers living for longer. We're going to be having this period of caregiving for, for longer. And um, we don't know how to deal with it, right? There's no, so we have to spend all this time, right? And she talks about this a lot in the book. You have to take another class. You have to read another article. You have to ferret out another thing. And that's what's causing the burnout instead of being able to be like, oh, we know how to take care of our elders. Right. You're going to get X, Y, and Z, and you're going to pay X number of dollars a month. And you can just enjoy on spending, enjoy and spend, enjoy spending that time with your parents. I think the other thing that we don't talk about and that is shocking for many millennials is, right, they, they're going along they probably have young kids and then a parent can go from being sprightly right. to not being sprightly in 24 hours, yeah. right? Because once you hit your seventies, your eighties, you can go from being in really good condition to breaking a hip and being right. on life support, right. Or getting COVID and this yeah. is in the span of a week. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I think it puts millennials in this situation where they're already burnt out from work. Then they're burnt out from parenting, right, in and trying to repeat this conscious cultivation that their parents did uh, to them, right? So they're trying to schedule and do all of these things for their children. And then all of a sudden, now they have a parent who also needs help and doesn't have any advocate, like, it's, it's insane. And I think because we're not talking about these things, people um, can't find the few resources that are out there. Yeah. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, I have. No, I think think that's all really good. I have a couple thoughts on it. One is that something that we've talked about a lot on here and we've had various guests and even yourself in the professional capacity of just this um, kind of explosion of like very focused coaching and consulting that I love. And obviously this is coming from like again, yuppie, urban, like, privileged position, right? It's like, I look at someone like Lily, where it's like, I paid her to do this program to teach me how to do something that people have been doing for thousands of years, which is dating and finding partnership. Or some something like Nicole, like the wedding coach. These are, like, revolutionary things that are very, very helpful. And I do see more of a willingness in millennials to spend their limited resources on trying to seek out help and I'm hoping that there are more of these cottage industries that pop up for aging parents and thinking like of those things. But, but obviously it's not accessible I, to everyone. Exactly. But I also think that what you, you made a really great point because there are so many wonderful people out there in this kind of 
like you said, cottage industry of coaching and helping and Mm -hmm. um, that goes beyond what self-help used to be, but, you know, it is really wonderful. And then as if you've been following any, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet, given our Rachel Hollis feelings. Yeah. Um, But the, the most recent Rachel Hollis faux pas debacle, um, there are people in, in that kind of coaching and, and self-help industry that are just completely predatory and they're preying on millennials who are burnout and yeah, who are sure. the MLM culture is a big part of that too. Yeah. It's all there. And they're taking resources away, right. From like, you know, so for someone like me or someone like Nicole or someone who li- like Lily, who charges a reasonable price and gives practical, actionable advice. Yeah we end up not really seeing a cut of that because people are so like they never they never even get to us because they're so distracted yeah. by like the predatory stuff so anyway it's a whole yeah thing. we need to do a deep dive on that whole thing for sure it's a people yeah. should google it if they don't know so yeah i think i think that's um that's certainly mm-hmm. certainly a piece of it that you know it's a double edged sword but i'm hoping uh, the optimistic part of me hopes that um the nice part of it is is happening but i certainly yeah. agree i think it's like it's so daunting to like think about yeah. having i'm like i'm exhausted right now and it's just me i have like no responsibilities whatsoever other than myself it's like insane oh yeah so yeah. i think that there's a big piece of that and the built the built in oh this is the other thing that i was going to say is like i think because of that like i've been having this conversation a lot with friends and like other millennial women is like we've you know we're all kind of in this like liberal new york like coastal bubble where it's like you know very progressive right and i feel like part of it i think is getting older but part of it i i do see this this shift where it's like because it's so hard and the burnout is there there's this shift towards traditionalism where it's like people want to be partnered in like a very traditional way and kind of the myth like there's more young conservatives now than there were in gen x for example it's kind of reverting back to this like boomer you know all these like young college republicans and stuff like that and i think that's super interesting and it's something that's not Mm -hmm. talked about is like when things are chaotic and unknown and like no one knows where the information is and things can change on a dime people really cling to tradition and stability for better or for worse and i think i've I've definitely seen that with some of my like very very liberal very independent friends are like actually i want to be like in a traditional marriage for like the financial stability and i want to be able to take time off work and like maybe be a stay-at-home mom and it's like you know part of this is like personal getting older like whatever but i i do think that it is because of the like chaotic underpinning of all of these you know parenting kids all that stuff grasp control where you can yeah um so i know we're probably coming to the end of our time and i just i really want to recommend if you didn't read this book kind of before listening to this episode to go ahead and do it but i really i wanted to read the very last paragraph because i thought it was it was a little bleak but it was really um i mean i thought it was really powerful and and goes back to again the, the core reason why we started this podcast is like 
why are people saying millennials are lazy pieces of shit when all we witness in our own lives and in those of our friends is this incredible creativity, this astonishing hustle, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I wanted to read this. So she says, millennials have been denigrated and mischaracterized, blamed for struggling in situations that set us up to fail. But if we have the endurance and aptitude and wherewithal to work ourselves this deeply into the ground, we also have the strength to fight. We have little savings and less stability. Our anger is barely contained. We're a pile of ashes smoldering, a bad memory of our best selves. Underestimate us at your peril. We have so little left to lose. Mm. And so powerful, beautiful writing, but also right? Are we not seeing this? Is this not what 2020 and 2021 has been around? And again, has been about, has been about this, whatever, blow it up. Yeah. Because it's like, fuck it, do it your own, do your own it. thing. Yeah. I think it's, I, I love that you wanted to read that and you bring it up. Cause I think on one hand it is super bleak. It's like so depressing what's happening. But on the other hand, it's like, I do think the past year has shown that where there was so much pessimism and so much destruction and loss and grief and it's like we're still here we're still do i've it's like i feel more productive than i ever have and again not everyone has that opportunity but i think when we're talking about generational stuff and you know many data points across a whole generation like it is very powerful and i do agree like when we are the ones in power it's going to be I think th- things are gonna. It's we're gonna fuck some shit up. I'm ready. Yeah, I'm here for I think it. So we good. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. All right, kids. Thank you so much. Unless Maddie, you had any last things no, to say? I think that's great. Definitely would recommend yeah. reading the book um, if you haven't. I think yeah. it talks and through again, a ton of just like general millennial topics too, not just burnout, which is mm-hmm. great. Yeah, and again, the book is called "Can't Even: How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation." We have a link. Uh, to my bookshop.org page where you can purchase it, where I will get a small commission, which I will use to take Madeline out for a beer when she comes to Portland in the summer. Um, And a portion of all proceeds also go to independent bookstores. Um, But yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. And we will see you soon. Bye, campers. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com, and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Thanks, campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood.